All right. Well, welcome everyone. It's good to be with you. And um, I'm just trying to sort this out, make sure everything is going. If you can hear me well, maybe just chat, uh, text in the chat that you can hear me or if there's any difficulties, I wanna make sure that um, everything is working before we, um, before we get going. Okay, I'm getting some chats back saying that you can hear me, that's fantastic. All right, so <clears throat> my name is Natasha Dysinger, and um, maybe some of you know me, maybe some of you don't. Um, <clears throat> I've worked for, I worked for many years with GYC here in North America and um, had the privilege of being involved in one of the GYC Europe events as well. And, um, you know, now this is a unique opportunity to be a part of this joint uh, ASI Europe and GYC Europe event, and because of all the circumstances that we have going on, it's online. So, um, just really thankful for the, um, you know, the the technology that makes it possible for all of us to still meet together and discuss important topics, um, you know, even under the interesting circumstances that we have. So, why don't we start with a word of prayer, and then um, we'll jump into this topic. All right, Heavenly Father. We thank you so much for your goodness. And Lord, as we talk about this really important topic of um, having really vibrant devotional life, we pray that you would give us guidance and your Holy Spirit and that you would um, come and meet with us and that you would bless me and help me to speak words that come only from you and bless everybody else that is on this, uh, this workshop. And I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to them as well to help them hear what would be a blessing to them and to protect them from anything that I may say that may not be quite right. And Lord, just please give us your Holy Spirit. Um, you made the promise that wherever two or three are gathered, you will be in the middle of us. And um, we're gathered here, even though we're uh, scattered across the, the, the globe. So please uh, fulfill that promise and be with us now as we um, discuss this important topic in Jesus name. Amen. All right, so as we get going with this topic of, um, you know, how to have a vital connection, a, a really vibrant devotional life so that our, it really keeps our walk with God truly um, strong and developed. Um, I know that typically the way the workshops are supposed to work, I think, is to have the presentation first and a question and answer later. Um, as we go, though, if you have, like, questions or clarifications on anything that I that I say go ahead and uh, type it into the chat and um, we can maybe make sure that things are clear as we go along as well so just want to um, make that clear and then um, all right let's jump into this topic so um, you know I think that almost anybody that has had religious instruction and we've you know learned of you know, we want to have a relationship with God, we know at some level that it's important to have um, a devotional life um, where we spend time with God. You can't have a relationship unless you spend some time with that person. And so we know that's important, but the difficulty comes in where, you know, we, we want to do it, but maybe we're, we're very busy. And so sometimes it gets crowded out or um, the other potential difficulty can be when we um, have our devotions, but 
it's not very special. <laughs> you know, it's not very, it's not very interesting. It's not very, um, it doesn't really feed our, our, our walk with God very much. And we, our walk with God is just kind of limping along and is dry or stale or um, something like that. So what do we do to make sure that our devotional life really feeds a real walk with God? So we're going to talk first about two things that are um, basically, if one of them is missing, you, you have to have both of them in order to have a quality devotional life. And both of them can easily be overlooked. So we're going to talk about those two things first. And then as we have time, we'll start talking about, um, you know, practical ways of studying the Bible um, to make it more meaningful. Uh, but first, we're going to talk about these two foundational things and then go off into uh, the practical how-tos. So um, first thing is, um, let's turn to John 17 verse three. I hope you have your Bible, even though we're, you know, not right by each other and um, we're all in our own homes or um, wherever we are. So we want to turn to John 17 verse three first. And here we learn the bottom line um, necessity of why we have a walk with God and why we have devotions, right? It says, this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So the key to, you know, walk with God in general is really knowing him, not just knowing about him, but knowing him personally. So let's look at it this way. If you, you know, think about the most famous person in your country, um, from whichever country you, you, are, you individually are from, think about you know, one of the most famous people in your country. And, you know, here that would probably be the president. Um, and, and that's typically the case, you know, the leader of the country is one of the most famous people in, in the country. Um, though maybe not always, but if you think about, um, you know, for instance, here in my country, the United States, um, you know, president Trump or president Obama before him, president Bush before him, they are one of the most famous people in America and a lot of them have written books. So let's say I take a book, um, let's say President Obama's book, and I start reading that and I read it every day. And I, you know, I study it back and forth and I read every chapter and then I reread it and I read it again and then I spend special times focusing on a specific paragraph, really trying to understand what he's what he was trying to communicate in that paragraph. And let's say I do that every day for a year. And also let's say that everything was completely true. Now, um, you know, on earth here, oftentimes maybe the things we read in the news, you know, we, we don't want to say that people are intentionally being misleading, but everything has a, a person's own you know, slant on things, their own perspective. Um, and, and that's, that's natural. That's normal. So, you know, we have to recognize that there's on earth, there's more, there's more perspectives to something than just one perspective. Right. But let's say that in this book written by this famous person, it was all 100% accurate with absolutely no shade of human bias or anything. Now at the end of that year, would someone be able to say, you know, Natasha is, is real friends with, say I, you know, say I did it with President Obama's book. Let's say at the end of that year, could someone actually say Natasha is friends with President Obama? Could they say that? 
no, not really, because I may know a lot about, you know, President Obama. I may have read his book over and over. I may have, um, you know, immersed myself in his thinking or whatever. And, and you could say, well, she knows a lot about the president, but you wouldn't be able to say she knows the president, right? So it's a little bit different there. And the Bible is God's, you know, God's, God's book, God's autobiography, if you will. And we know that it's 100% true. We know that it's 100% accurate. And it's, it's completely aside from human um, perspective or bias. It is, it is a completely true book. However, life eternal doesn't just come from, you know, browsing through it and, you know, thinking that I, you know, I, you know, reading it back and forth and studying a particular paragraph. Now, it's true that the words of God are different than the words of men because the words of God, you know, they, they are above the words of men. They bring life. But just because I read it back and forth and back and forth doesn't mean that I'm going to actually know God. I may know a lot about him, but I'm not, that doesn't necessarily mean I know him. And, um, you know, the, the reality of what brings life is really knowing God, not just knowing about him. And we have a lot of examples in scripture of um, people who knew a lot about God but didn't know him. And, and, you know, one of the most famous examples of that is the Pharisees. They knew the scriptures. They, you know, read it back and forth. This was the Old Testament, you know, at the time that they had. They could quote it. They could do all sorts of things. They'd talk, they'd preach. And at the end, the reality was they, they didn't know Christ. And when he came, they, they, they killed him because they didn't recognize him. It's a, a real example that should be sobering to us that just interacting with the Bible doesn't necessarily mean that I'll know Christ. And, um, you know, we have a, the, also the example of a person, of the people that say, um, Jesus is talking and he talks about the people that will say, oh, Lord, didn't we, didn't we prophesy? Didn't we cast out devils? Didn't we do all these wonderful things? And his reply will be, I don't know you, right? So that'd be the issue if I read, you know, the president's book every day, you still couldn't say I'm friends with the president because he doesn't know me, right? And, and we don't have a relationship. So when we approach the Bible, we have to recognize, you know, the words of God are above the words of men. And so the words of the Bible, if we just expose ourselves to the words of the Bible consistently, it will make a big difference, okay, in our lives. That There's no question about that. However, we can also just approach yeah, somebody comments that the, the, even the devil knows the Bible, right? The devils believe, they tremble, you know, they, they recognize there's a God. There's no, there's no devil atheist, right? They know, <laughs> you know, there's a God and they know the Bible, but it didn't tra transform their life. They don't know Christ as a relationship. They used to have a relationship with him, but they lost that through disobedience. And now they, they don't have a relationship, even though they know the Bible. So how do we escape that, um, you know, that trap? Because we want to have, life, a vital connection. And I think everybody, myself included, has probably experienced what it's like to read back and forth in the Bible and then, you know, have lots of information in our, in our heads, but not really be changed by it. So if we have experienced that, what can we do that we can be sure that our devotional time will produce really knowing Christ and not just knowing about him. So let's look at another verse. It's in 1 John 5, verse 12. 
um, so not the Gospel of John, but the first epistle, 1 John 5 and verse 12. And it says, he that has the Son has life. And he that does not have the Son does not have life. So it's similar to the previous verse where it's pointing out that really knowing God is what brings salvation, really having Christ ourselves personally is what brings life and, um, and transform, transforms us. Now question, what does it mean to have life? Okay, so we, we, we've established that head knowledge, just reading the Bible or theoretically knowing the Bible doesn't change and transform us automatically and guarantee that we have a, a wonderful connection with God. So if we know that and head knowledge alone can't cut it, then what does it mean to really have the sun and have life? Like, how do we know that our devotional time is bringing us, you know, vibrancy? Like, so if I read my Bible one morning, I have my devotions, and at the end, I, you know, I didn't have this amazing experience where it's like, oh, you know, the heavens open, wow, I'm feeling like I'm on top of the world spiritually. Do we always have to have that experience in order to have had quality devotions? No, we don't. And just the reality of walking with God and walking through different experiences, learning experiences, often learning experiences stretch us and make us uncomfortable. And so we don't feel all, you know, like all thrilled with ecstasy in that moment. And, and then the, the question is, you know, did I really have fantastic devotion? So what, what makes us know that we have, you know, a, a quality devotional time? And I think one of the keys to that is what, what we just talked about. If he who has the son has life, spiritual life comes directly from Christ through his sacrifice, through his death, his resurrection and his, his mediation now in heaven interceding on our behalf he gives us life and of course the one of the most direct places that he has done that is in his word but when i come to the bible what i'm looking for is not this amazing experience where i'm just like full of all these wonderful feelings what i'm looking for is actual signs of spiritual life and that's how i can gauge is my devotions actually um bringing me closer to christ is it actually developing something um, spiritual life within my soul, even if I don't have this amazing feeling. And, you know, what, what does it mean to have spiritual life? You know, certainly feeling, you know, joy in God, that's, that's a sign of spiritual life, but there's a lot of other things that are signs of spiritual life too. Conviction of sin, you know, a desire for the word of God, a desire to pray, um, hunger after God, longing for more of him, longing to know him, um, you know, the, the ache or the desire to to interact all those are all those are signs of spiritual life because we don't have that by ourselves so if we want something more from god if we want a relationship with him that's a sign that he's working in our hearts and that he's drawing us to himself and it's a sign of spiritual life and those things should be continually growing and getting stronger and getting stronger and getting stronger through our devotional life as well as getting to know christ and who he is and what he is like and having an in and you know a, a relationship with him so 
the two things I talked, I said that we were going to talk about two fundamental things that you have to have first to be able to have good devotions um, and to avoid the experience of just reading and not knowing and having Christ. So the first thing <clears throat> is the Holy Spirit. And listen, you know, listen carefully to this because I think it's easy for us to say, yes, I know, I know I need the Holy Spirit. I know that I need, you know, God to enlighten my mind. And so we, you know, before our devotions, maybe we pray and you're like, Lord, please give me your Holy Spirit. Help me to understand. But then we go through and we don't really like feel the, you know, feel the difference. So what does it mean to really have the Holy Spirit? You know, it says, you know, in the word of God, you know, my God speaking, he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As the heavens are above the earth, you know, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. So we're humans. He's divine. And our, our minds, as much as we can stretch and seek to reach out after God, our minds cannot comprehend him. That's why he gave us the Bible as a self-revelation. He, he, he shows us himself in the Bible. But even that is our minds are, you know, we can, we can take scriptures and pick it apart and, you know, debate it and argue about theology and do all sorts of things and not know him. So we really need something outside of ourselves to enable us to really take the word of God and understand the person of Christ and have a relationship with him because we cannot do that on our own. And we know that, you know, technically, but how does it work practically? Um, it says in John 14, verse 26, the comforter, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, John, this is John 14, 26, he will teach you all things. So that's a promise. He says the helper, the Holy Spirit, the Father is going to send him in my name, Christ speaking, and he will teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, all that I have said to you. So if we need to learn of God, who's going to teach us that? The Holy Spirit, right? He will teach us all things. It's just, it's, it's similar maybe to the verse that where it talks about in John 1, you know, that all things were made by Christ. It was the, obviously the, you know, the Father the God, the father, he had a sovereign plan, but the Bible says that nothing that has come into being came into being apart from Christ. Christ was involved in everything that has been made in the universe. And in, and then I think this verse is kind of its cousin verse in the sense of anything that we can learn about God, about spiritual life, about Christ comes through the Holy Spirit. He will teach you all things. So if we need to learn more about Jesus and really how to have Christ ourselves, we need the Holy Spirit to teach us that and to remind us also because we can learn things and we quickly forget as well. So we need the Holy Spirit to teach us and um, to remind us both. Um, and this is not just a, um, this is not just a mystical experience of oh, you know, I feel this power. And so and people do pursue mystical experiences and we want to steer clear of that error, right? So if I, you know, um, there's a lot of people that will use a lot of things that stir human emotion to produce an, an emotional state in which I have feel like I'm having this amazing experience. Um, and then we use those things to create what we think is a wonderful spiritual experience with God, and it may not actually be 
you know, directed by the Holy Spirit, right? So we don't, we want to be careful not to just like pursue a mystical experience, which is like, oh, you know, I, I have these wonderful feelings, but we want to experience um, the real filling of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our lives. So um, let's look at John 6, 63. And somebody just asked a question, how do I understand if I'm filled with the Holy Spirit? That is a fantastic question. And we'll, we'll wrap around to that in just a moment, okay? Um, very, very good question. Um, so John 6, verse 63. This is actually one of my... Um, favorite verses in the Bible. And it's one that I go back to often as a reminder to myself because, um, you know, I was raised in a wonderful Christian home and I was given a lot through my parents. I was given a lot of, of knowledge, you know, religious knowledge and instruction. Um, and I'm very grateful for that gift. But we as humans, if we have maybe a lot of not, you know, religious knowledge, religious instruction, we can often try to take that and apply it ourselves. Or it's like, I know that this is right. And so I'm going to do it, you know, <laughs> and um, is, it, it's easy for me to fall into that trap in my personality, especially, I think it's easy for all humans, but maybe some humans are, are easier because I'm very task oriented. I like goals and I like productivity. And so it's easy to say, well, you know, I know what this is, you know, my religious goal, and so I'm going to try to tackle that too. It doesn't work, right? So John 6, verse 63, and it says here, um, it's the Spirit who gives life. This is Jesus speaking. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh, that's us and our effort, is no help at all, okay? So this is one of it's a, it's a very blunt verse, like Jesus is speaking very plainly, but it's helpful for me to go back and listen to again and again and say, okay, if I need spiritual life, I need the Holy Spirit. The flesh is my own effort, my own determination to read and memorize. It's no help at all. It's like, it's not gonna, it's not gonna fix anything. So the spirit gives life, the flesh is no help at all. Then he says, the words I have spoken to you our spirit and our life. So he's connecting the Holy Spirit and his teaching to us, to the Bible. So he says, you need the Holy Spirit and you need the Bible because the words I speak to you, that's what we have in, this, in the scriptures, those are spirit and those are life. And you need the Holy Spirit to interpret that and teach you everything and remind you of everything. So the Holy Spirit is like comprehensively necessary to our devotional experience. Otherwise, we can be like the Pharisees or like any other, you know, confused religious group who has taken the Bible and then done terrible things, right? Um, and we're all humans and we're all capable of doing that. So we want, maybe, maybe not to that, we, maybe we wouldn't go to the extreme, but we're all capable of, you know, reading the word of God and then going out and maybe saying an unkind word to a family member. It's, it's the same principle. Our life needs to be transformed, right, and changed. So how do we know if our devotions are successful and if they're bringing life? Again, the Spirit gives life. And the Word, the Word of God, the Bible, is what the Holy Spirit uses to bring that life into our hearts. So how do I know if I have life? And this is going to wrap back around to the question of how do I understand if I'm filled with the Holy Spirit? And it wraps back to what I was saying before as well about what is spiritual life? It's not just a feeling. It's not just, I know I have the Holy Spirit because I, I feel like I have the Holy Spirit because we can have the Holy Spirit without um, 
you know, feeling this amazing glow. So it goes back to um, I, the book Steps to Christ has this very beautiful passage. And it says, it's talking about how do I know if I have spiritual life in my heart? And it's, then it asks a bunch of questions. It says, who has your heart? With whom are your thoughts? Who are you thinking about? Who are you loving to talk about? Who has your warmest affections? It says, who, who do you have the, the, the greatest love towards and your best energies? And then it says, if you are Christ's, your, your thoughts are with him and your sweetest thoughts are of him. So this is how we know if there's spiritual life being awakened in our hearts. If we have desires after God, if we have the desire to go into the word of God, if we have the desire to pray, if we have conviction of sin, if we have, um, and conviction is different again from condemnation. So just feeling terrible about ourselves and being like, oh, you know, I, I did that again. I did the wrong thing again and I know better. That's condemnation, okay? But conviction is when the Holy Spirit speaks to us and says, you need to turn. You're going, you're going one way, you need to turn and go the other direction. Come back to me. And he's never driving us. He's calling us back closer to himself. So when we know that we have conviction, when we maybe sense something in our life and God is saying, turn from that and come to me, not turn from that and you bad person, <laughs> you know, driving you away. So conviction is always being drawn back closer to the to, to Christ. And the Holy Spirit, um, the Holy Spirit is specifically, Jesus says in John, he says that the Holy Spirit is specifically there to convict us of righteousness and sin and judgment. So when, when we know that, when we feel that sense of God is pointing out something in my life that he, that is not right, you have the Holy Spirit. That's what the, the Holy Spirit's doing that, right? Isn't that encouraging? Because we can feel like, you know, I've failed in this or whatever that's actually a sign that we have the Holy Spirit working in our heart if he's drawing us back to himself. Um, and the, the awakening of desires for Christ and all those things, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. So now um, what we need to do is we can use, we can see these things of spiritual life being awakened in our heart to know, is the Holy Spirit working in my life? Yes. If I have the awakenings of spiritual life, the desire after God and all that, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, what do I do? Now what I do is I seek to continue to cultivate that relationship, recognizing that he's the one that's always going to have to give me life. So I continually go back to, go back to him for more and, and ask the Holy Spirit for more. And with our devotion specifically, I think one of the most important things, and this is something I have to be continually reminded of too myself, is that it's so easy for me when I, I have my devotions first thing in the morning when I wake up, because if I get into my day, and I do a bunch of things, and then I try to have my devotions, my mind is going too quickly on all the things that I'm busy with. And so I find that it's very difficult to have quality devotional life at that, at that time. So for me, I have it in the morning when I first wake up. So let's say I get up in the morning and I get my Bible and whatever else I'm going to read. And um, it's very easy to just be like, you know, Lord, be with me. I, you know, I want to learn about you. So please give me your Holy Spirit guide me and, you know, teach me as I read. Amen. And then just jump into it. Um, and I really think that that's actually one of the biggest traps because um, the more we, the more time we spend in prayer and in readying our hearts before him and asking for the Holy Spirit to come and teach us and to search us and to cleanse us and to give us new hearts and to fulfill his promise 
um, of teaching us all things and, and reminding us of all things, the more time we really spend doing that, the, the better our devotional life will be. And the more we are bringing to our, ourselves into a place where the Holy Spirit can speak to us. So I think the very first key is recognizing the importance of the Holy Spirit. If we're going to have good devotional experience that's really a vital connection not just an interesting read but a vital connection of really having the son for ourselves having christ for ourselves the first step is really having the holy spirit and really um taking time not just to hastily pray quickly pray before our devotions but really spend some time it's not a specific amount of time of you know this many minutes it's really stilling ourselves before God, being quiet before him and really requesting every single day, preferably more than once, you know, morning, noon, night, whatever, really requesting the Holy Spirit to help us with our devotions and to teach us all things and remind us of all things. And so that's the first key. Don't ever open the Bible. And I'm speaking to myself as well. Don't ever open the Bible without first asking for the Holy Spirit to really guide and direct and cleanse and change and um, inspire and help us, right? We need that so badly. And it's a simple thing and it's something we all know, but I would encourage you to think back on maybe your last month approximately and the devotional times you've had and ask yourself, how many of those devotional times did I really ask for the Holy Spirit ahead of time, really plead for him to come and, and, and change my heart? And did I really plead for the Holy Spirit and then have a no good devotions? Like, does that, does that happen? They really don't, they don't go together. If we plead for the Holy Spirit, he will answer and he will come and help us. So that's the first key. Um, so here's a here's a good question. I think it's practical before we move on to the next one. What if I really want to sleep in the morning and have difficulties to understand the Bible because I'm sleepy? And that is the reality. If you are very tired in the morning, it's harder. It's harder to have significant time with God, okay? And I I have experienced this very practically because I have very um I have an, a year and a half year old boy. And um for his first year basically the first 12 months. He was born early. He was born prematurely <clears throat> because of complications with my pregnancy. So he came out very small. He spent a lot of time in intensive care in the hospital. And when he sent, was sent home, we had to be up through the night. And um, I experienced the worst sleep deprivation <laughs> I've ever experienced ever. And it, it, was, it was truly terrible. And in the morning, I would be utterly and completely exhausted okay and it is true i did not have very good devotions when i was in that state when i was just so exhausted i could hardly function okay so there's a couple practical suggestions one is depending on your life circumstances um in the case of my son i couldn't change that i couldn't change the fact that he was born early and he had needs that we had to meet in the middle of the night that that could not be altered so um let me say this first <clears throat> if you do have things that you can change so that you can get in bed earlier if you have maybe ways you can rearrange your schedule and you can get a good night's sleep in order to have time in the morning i'd really encourage you to do that and that would um especially include you know um there's things that maybe we may have sleep, but they reduce the quality of our sleep, being exposed to 
um, light from our electronics at night um, really actually affects not just our ability to go to sleep right then, but it actually affects our brain chemistry and the, the serotonin, melatonin and the way, and those interact with good sleep. So um, it's really advisable to put our technology away before at least some time before bed so that our, 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 um, our serotonin and melatonin cycle can uh, work properly and give us good quality rest for in the morning. So if there's things that you can change, um, I would encourage you to change those so that you can have a good night's sleep. If you cannot change the circumstances in your life, like with my little boy, we couldn't change that. <laughs> the fact that he had those needs and we had to be up at night, um, you know, not as much anymore, but for a long time we did. Um, because those circumstances were not changeable, then God will help us to figure something else out. In my case, what I ended up doing is I just, I prayed, I was like, Lord, you know that I typically don't have that great of devotions in the middle of the day. And I have a son who's often doing stuff in the middle of the day, but help me find some time where I can have devotions where I'm not so exhausted. And so I did, um, prayed about that. And God really inspired me to do have um, my, my son, Ethan, his first nap time and use that for devotion. So I didn't actually do my early devo devotions early in the morning. I slept a little bit longer until he woke up. I'd have maybe a prayer and a short uh, read something just to just just briefly. I'd go into the day, and then when his first nap time rolled around, he went down. The house was quiet, and I would take <clears throat> take some time for devotions. That was like late morning, right? You know, God God provided a time where I could have time with Him. Um, you know, it it wasn't it was I did have the challenge of having to slow my mind back down, but God enabled me to do that because he saw that those were my circumstances. So if you have um, some kind of challenge where you are not getting good night's sleep, try to either change your schedule so you can have a good night's sleep, or if you utterly cannot change your circumstances because they're beyond your control, then God will help you just set another time that you can really protect um, during the day that you can have quality time with him. And um, what I would just mostly encourage you is really find a time when you can be awake and alert and have a specific protected time that you always protect every day. And it doesn't just move around and you just tuck God in, in wherever you can fit him. Have, have a time that's specifically set aside, um, set aside for Christ. Um, okay, so I'm going to jump back to the, so the first thing is the Holy Spirit. I'm going to jump back to the second thing, and then we'll we'll address a couple other questions that tucked uh, that that have come through. Um, actually, let me say this really. Let me answer this quickly here from Sarah. How do I manage personal de morning devotion with family morning devotion? Personally, in our home, we have both. So we have individual devotions. I have mine. My husband has his. We that's usually before our little boy wakes up, and then we have a morning family worship together. Um, of course, our little boy is only a year and a half, so those are not very long. They're short, um, and that's a little bit later, usually um, right after breakfast. So we like to have both, if, if at all possible. If you are in a family situation, you're not like maybe a single individual, but if you're in a family situation, it is wonderful to have um, family devotions as well um, that, are, that are suited to like the age and stage of your family. And, and just be pretty creative and take it through for God of, you know, what can I do to make them, them all work um, so that I can have good devotions. My kids, if you're in that stage, can have good devotions and, um, and, and we can have maybe a little time together as a family as well. Okay, so first point is Holy Spirit. We have to have his help. So 
Never open up the word of God without really asking truly seriously on your knees. And even if you don't feel it, you're like, I don't feel much spiritual life being stirred up. I don't have much desire for God. But if you are willing to like ask for it, that's even a sign that he's drawing, drawing your heart. So um, Holy Spirit first. Second thing that is absolutely critical, and this is something that I overlooked for many years in my devotions. Um, second thing is heart searching and preparation. We have the parable that Jesus gave, and he gave it in, um, it's, it's recorded in several gospels in Matthew and Mark and Luke, and they all talk about the parable of the sower, right? The, the man that went out with seed and he put it down on different types of ground, and there was the, the, the path, and some seed fell on the path. There was the um, rocky ground, some seed fell there. Some fell on the weedy ground, some fell on the good ground, okay? And I think we're all probably familiar with it. And just for the sake of time, I'm not going to read that whole passage. But you can find that in, in all of the Gospels. And I really encourage you to go and spend time studying that in your devotions over the next little while, because it's been a huge, huge thing for my spiritual life and my spiritual growth. And what's interesting about that parable is that um, Jesus very specifically, because the disciples go to Jesus and say, what does it mean? And so Jesus interprets it very specifically, and it's very clear in the Bible what he's talking about. He says the sower, that's Christ, but you know, I think it could be the Holy Spirit, Christ, and what he is sowing the word. So he is actually putting the word of God into our hearts, and he puts it into four different kinds of hearts, and only one of them actually produces life okay so it's, it's a kind of a sobering thing because it's like which of the four am I and I think we can always sometimes be several of them at times too so you have first the path and you if you remember the parable he put down the seed and some of it landed on the path and it just bounced off the ground was hard because people walk there and everything it just bounced off the top and um it didn't go down into the soil and then birds came and picked off the seed and ate it and no plants ever rooted or came up. It was just bare. <clears throat> then you had the, the, the rocky ground. And the seed landed on it. And there was some dirt. But it was shallow dirt because there were a bunch of rocks. And so the plants actually did start to grow. They germinated. They started to come up. But after they came up, the roots couldn't get very down. And as soon as it got hot, they died. Okay, So there was a little bit of life. But it didn't last for very long. The weedy ground, the seed landed, the plants came up, the weeds came up, and after a while, the little plant starts getting choked, so it gets sickly and kind of weaker and weaker and weaker, and eventually it dies. Um, actually, the Bible never says specifically that, it that the plant completely died. It just said it got choked and it, it didn't produce fruit. So the plant was maybe still kind of there, but it wasn't, it didn't produce anything no, no, no food came off of it, right? And I think that's what actually often happens with our spiritual life. We have, we have some, uh, some, something's there. <laughs> something's living, but it's getting choked so badly it doesn't produce fruit. And then, of course, there was the good ground. The seed landed on it, and it came up. It grew well. It grew vigorously, and it produced a lot of fruit. And that's what we want, and that's very clearly the point of the parable. So... <clears throat> Christ is articulating clearly that this is a type of heart. And if the word of God comes in, but the heart is not prepared, the heart is not ready for it, 
the word of God can come in over and over and over. And it, it, it still won't produce life that we're looking for. So we need the Holy Spirit and we need to have the right kind of ground. And again, it's the spirit that helps us have the right kind of heart. But there's also um, in the word of God, it says in, um, in Hosea 10, verse 12, it says, sow for yourselves righteousness and reap steadfast love. So it's talking again in terms of growing things. So righteousness and reap steadfast love or reap mercy. And then it says, break up your fallow ground. It's time to seek the Lord until he comes and rains righteousness on you. So what he's saying is the ground in your heart that's just kind of lying there hasn't been, there hasn't been, um, you know, that the plants of spiritual life, because it's using that um, analogy, those plants are not growing. He says, you need to plow up that ground. So there's an actual heart that we play. We, we, we need the Holy Spirit to come and do it, but we need to be actively participating in it for that to happen. So let's look just briefly again at all the different types of soil. And then, um, you know, because we don't have a lot of time, we're going to have to, you know, I would really encourage you to take this back and um, make it a consistent part of your, your spiritual life, your devotional life to revisit that parable and revisit the soil of your heart and say, you know, what's, what's happening, Lord, in the soil of my heart? And is this seed actually um, able to, to grow? So um, let's just look again briefly at the soil types and what those are like and, and, and glance at our own hearts. And we're going to do it quickly now, but I'd encourage you to do it in a little bit more depth later. So first one, the first type of soil was the path, right? He threw the seed, landed on the path, but the path was very packed down and it was hard. And the seeds just bounced off the top and the birds came and ate it. So what does that mean? Now, the actual word about the pathway, um, actually the, the word in the, in the original language means something that's like a habitual way of life, of thinking and feeling. So you can, you can immediately begin to see how this happens. I always think a certain way. It's like, I'm used to thinking this, and let's say, for instance, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of Christians that really struggle with understanding the love of God. So maybe they feel condemned and um, don't feel the love of God. And we're accustomed to viewing God that way. It's just like all my life, I've really struggled to feel His love. Okay, so then we read the Bible in our devotions, and we read God is love. Well, if we're accustomed to thinking and feeling and and processing like, oh, you know, God doesn't love me. Then when that seed of the word comes down and says, God is love. If we have particularly let ourselves start thinking a certain way, it's hard for that word to sink in, right? Because it's just like, well, I don't feel like God loves me or I don't, I don't, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not sensing this. And so pretty soon the word of God isn't able to actually sink down because we're accustomed to thinking something different, right? And this is a this is a, just a common problem with humans because we, you know, we're we're sinners and we experience sinful patterns of thought, which are contrary to the word of God. So the word of God comes, and we're thinking something different, and and it has a difficult time sinking in and getting down into our hearts. And then what happens if that seed is just there and all exposed? Then the birds come, right? And and um, we're gonna have to go through this quickly. We have, my husband and I have done, um, we have a devotional um, program that's coming out soon 
uh, that you can actually go through to really reboot and bring life back into your devotions. And we talk about this more in depth of these birds come and they take away the seed. And what that really represents is doubt. So if, if let's say I'm accustomed to feeling like God doesn't love me, then, I, then the word comes and says, God is love. And you're like, well, I don't, I'm not sure about that. I, I don't feel that way. And then pretty soon we're like, is that really true? And we start doubting it. And then Satan comes and grabs that out of our hearts. And pretty soon the fact that God is love has flown away and gotten eaten by a bird. Okay. So, um, very important to understand where are my thought processes, my way of life, my habit, you know, I've always done this. Maybe I go to the Bible and the Bible says that I need to you know, love my enemies and bless those who curse me and do good to those who hate me and pray for those who treat me poorly. And um, let's say I read that and I'm just like, but this person really did something so evil and so wrong to me. And so rather than allowing my thought process, which may be, you know, resentment and bitterness and anger towards somebody who did something truly wrong, um, when I encounter that, if that's my train of thought of bitterness and anger, when I come to that, that passage in the word of God, what I really need to do is say, okay, what I've been typically thinking in this situation is resentment towards that person. And what the word of God is saying is that I need to have something different in my mind. And so that's the moment when the word of God is hitting the hard tack, you know, ground of our mind and our heart. And we have to be willing to say, okay, Lord, this is where we go back to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's work in our life and say, I see that my way of thinking and feeling in this area is not in accordance with your word. Please help me and help me to break up. Give me a new heart in this area. I mean, it's not just something that happens once and just suddenly, oh, now I feel amazing. It has to happen over and over and over again. So that's the first one. You know, I would encourage you to take time and myself to take time again, saying to the Lord, Lord, what are, what are areas in which I typically think and feel in a way that's not in accordance with your word? And what are ways in which I tend to doubt you? So is it maybe that I doubt God's provision in my life? Is it that I doubt his ability to help me overcome a specific sin? Is it that I doubt that that doubt is the devil trying to come and get that that seed out of our hearts before it can um, take root. So that's the first one is the path. Because what, what happens with the path is that no plant ever even grows because we think something different. So the word can't get down in and then doubt takes it away completely and no plant ever gets established. It's the very worst one, right? So um, spend some time studying through that parable and Jesus' explanation of the parable and just making it a prayer, a time of prayer before God and saying, is there an area in which my, my thoughts and my feelings are so, so established on a particular subject that it's difficult for your word to get in and then praying, Lord, please help me to break up that, um, in my, in my heart, um, that, that, that area of my heart. Okay. The second one is the rocks, the, you know, that he sowed the word and it landed on rocks. You know, the Bible says that when Jesus gave the parable of the wise man and the foolish man who built two houses, what did the wise man build on? The rock, only one, right? The wise man built his house on the rock, not many rocks. The foolish man built his house, you know, on the sand. Well, sand is actually, what is it? Broken down rocks, right? It's, it's small. The wise man, what he did was he built on one rock. And who was that rock? 
Christ, right? We know that. So when we start sorting, starting to build, not just on one rock, but on many rocks, we say, you know, part of what makes me secure and strong and what brings me my stability is Christ. But then I also have these other things, my friends, what they think is also extremely important. And, um, you know, my, my work or my school, that's you know, extremely important. And we start building our lives around these other things and not just around Christ. The Bible says um, in Mark, when Jesus is giving the explanation of the parable, he says that when persecution comes, these people become offended because the word was not able to get down in. Now, why was it not able to get down in? Because there was so many rocks down in there into that soil that they were, that was down there. It wasn't just the one rock, it was many, right? So um, let's say, what do we, what do we lose when we have persecution? We might lose our job, we might lose our family, we might lose our home. And so all these things, these people were holding on to as part of their security. And so when the, when the, moment came, Christ said that it was like, you lose your home or you lose Christ. They let go of Christ and they kept to their home. Or you lose your home or you, or you lose your job or you lose Christ. You lose your family or you lose Christ. You lose your life or you lose Christ. Who are you going to let go of, right? In that moment, the, the Bible says when it was stony ground, because they were holding on to their career, their family, their boyfriend and girlfriend, their, their school, their whatever it was, they were holding on to those things in addition to Christ, that's stony ground. That's what the parable's teaching. So I would encourage you again to take some time and myself to take some time and look at our hearts and say, these may be good things. Sometimes it's bad things that we need to let go of. Sometimes it's good things that we're clinging to and saying, God, I could never live without that. Like I could never live without this relationship. You can't take it away from me. It's a good thing anyway. You know, Lord, you just, you, you have to, didn't you give that to me anyway? So as soon as we start thinking that way, we're building on many rocks. There's many rocks in our heart, and then the soil can't get down because rather than just clinging to Christ, we're clinging to Christ and the world, other things, even good things. So, I mean, I remember um, late in my pregnancy before my son Ethan was born, we found out that it was really risky and that there was a, a chance that he might not um, survive. Okay. So he was alive at the time and, and by God's grace, he made it. So I could feel him moving around in there. And, um, but we found out that it was really, really, um, very dangerous. And that, you know, with the condition I had, many children will, many babies will die at the very end of the pregnancy. So they die before they're born, but they've lived all the way to that point. So I find this out right at the end of my pregnancy. And I remember just, you know, it was, of course, very painful, very um, difficult to go through. And I was praying and being like, Lord, I just, I can't have you take my son away from me. Like, it's only a few weeks so I'll get to meet him. Like, you can't take, please help it. Please save his life, right? Now, it's natural to pray that. It's natural to, to you know, God has put that desire in a, you know, in a, in a young mother's heart when, when her child is soon to be born it is the right thing for that child to be born. Like we live in a world where unfortunately sin has entered. And so you experience things like that where children maybe lose their lives early or bad things happen. It does, it does occur because we live in a sinful world, but that's not the way God created it to be. He created us to be excited about, for instance, in this case, the arrival of my son and to want him to live. That's right. However, as soon as we get to the point where we're saying, God, you'd better like, you better save him. You cannot, 
he cannot, I, I have to have him. We're starting to build on something other than Christ. In that case, my son's life, right? So I remember God really confronting me with the verse that says, who do I have in heaven beside you? And there's no one on earth I long for but you. Speaking of Christ, right? And that verse really spoke to me in that moment because I was like, at that moment, of course, my whole heart was very fixated on wanting my son to be okay and be able to be born safely. I mean, God was saying, are you holding on to him or are you holding on to me as, as what you need to cling to for life, right? So God really confronted me with that and I had to surrender it, right? Because I was clinging to my son's life. Now, did God take him away from me? No, he didn't. He saved him and he was born early, but he came and he's in health and he's, you know, he's, he's doing great. So God asked me to surrender that, not because he was like, let go and I'm going to take your son. No, he asked me to surrender because he knew that I had to cling to Christ on Christ alone. So that's why um, the, stony, the stony ground is when we're clinging to other things other than Christ and building our lives on other things other than Christ. Moving on quickly, the weeds, okay? So what happens with the spiritual life with the stones? It pops up. It does grow. But then it gets stunted because as soon as it gets hot, as soon as we have that moment where it's like, what if I lose my son? Or you know, in your circumstance, it might be something, what if I lose this relationship? Or what if I, God asks me to give this up? As soon as that moment comes, it's like, oh, wait a minute, God. And as soon as we start being like, oh, wait a minute, God, we, we, have, a, we have a problem in our lives, right? And that's going to prevent our spiritual life from growing. So that is the, the, that's the stones. That, now the weeds, it did pop up. And Jesus said in Mark, the weeds are the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for making money, and the desires for other things. So it's all the other busy things that crowd into our lives and give the word of God competition. And it can be things that are very important to do. Making a living. You know, at some point, we can't always just depend on other people forever. At some point, we have to, you know, as young people, we have to stand up. We have to start, you know, making a living for ourselves. That's something that we have to do. But it can become very all-consuming and start crowding out our walk with God and, 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 you know, pressuring maybe the desires of other things. You know, that's maybe the desire for a romantic relationship, you know, the desire for material things, the desire for a specific lifestyle. There's so many things we can desire. Entertainment. And they're not bad things in themselves, right? God gave us relationships. He gave us, you know, interesting things that we can do. The question is, are those things crowding out our walk with God, crowding out our time in his Bible, Pre in our Bibles, pressuring, you know, maybe I'm spending time in social media, but can't find time for the word of God, spending time on Instagram, but can't find enough time for the Bible, right? It's a weed in, in that case. It doesn't have to be a weed if it stays in its proper place, but as soon as it starts overgrowing the spot in our heart that is supposed to be for the word of God and the word of God alone, it's a weed. And it can be anything can become a weed. So that's the weedy ground. And I would encourage you to spend time saying, Lord, you know, what desires are in my life? What are, you know, what are, how is my life schedule? What is crowding out my time, mental time or physical time? So it may be, I may have time tangibly that I'm reading the Bible. And then, but if, if there's so much on my mind that my mind doesn't have time, that has to change, right? Because it needs mental space as well. 
So those are the weeds. And then of course you have the good ground. The good ground is the ground that's not hard packed. It's the ground that doesn't doubt and let the birds come. It's the ground that says, I feel this way, but God says something different and I believe the word of God. It's the, it's the ground that says, this is so important to me, but I'm going to let it go and I'm going to cling to Christ alone. And I'm going to allow God to decide whether he keeps, he leaves it in my life or he takes it away. Like the example I gave, God left it in my life. He left my son in my life. But he had, he took me to that moment where I was willing to let go and focus again and cling to Christ as the only thing I absolutely had to have, right? And then weeds. What is crowding out God's, God's word in my life, my mental life? or my physical life. And so if we have good ground that is, is the weeds are removed, the rocks are removed, this is, and, and, the, and the path is plowed up, then the word of God can come and land and it grows and it bears fruit, okay? So this is a second part of the word of God. I've gone through these, this parable very quickly. I, again, would encourage you to go back to that parable and really look at your heart and your life and say, you know, Lord, help me to understand what this means and how it applies to my heart. Because if our heart is not ready, or if we fail to ask for the Holy Spirit, these two incredibly important things, then no matter how much I read the Bible and how much I pour over it and study it, I still won't like, there still won't be spiritual life. So those two things, the Holy Spirit and the condition of our hearts, am I holding on to something? Am I clinging? And again, if I find something that I'm holding on to, it goes back to the Holy Spirit. Lord, please help me to let go of this. Please, I'm not willing to right now, but you can make me willing. And I'm willing for you to come and work. So please give me spiritual life. It goes back and then back to the word of God and letting him come and transform us. So these two things are the critical, the crucial, the incredibly important um, first things that we have to have established in our lives before our devotional lives will ever really be able to take off, okay? So, um, let me just go for this question real quick, and then we'll jump into like some of the practical, you know, how can I make the Bible more interesting to me? Um, this, there's a question here, should we have like a plan in our devotions, or should it go maybe more spontaneously, I think is what she's asking. For example, I can read one passage one day, and the next day another passage from another part of the Bible, um, and can I read any spiritual book? For example, um, Ellen White for my devotion, not just the Bible directly. Excellent questions. Um, and I would say, um, when it comes to, do I need to have a plan for my devotions or can I do it spontaneously? Um, here's, here's how I would answer that. Um, again, this is about a relationship, right? We're not just knowing about God, we're wanting to know him, have Christ ourselves. So for instance, in my relationship with my husband, if I got together with him, like, well, let me give you this example. For instance, my husband and I often, right before we go to bed, we'll read together. We'll have a worship. And then oftentimes I'll just lie in bed and he'll read to me from a book. And we'll often, we've read quite a few books in our marriage uh, on this topic. Not just, not, just, um, not, not just religious books. This is apart from our, our worship time, our evening worship time together. This is just you know, right now we're reading a book on agriculture because we, we live on a farm, right? Okay, so right now, at night, we will read together. And that's, we do it most nights of the week. Not every night, but most nights. Well, let's say one night, that's, that's our plan. We have that plan and we typically do that. Well, let's say something has happened one day and it's really on my heart or it's on his heart or something or maybe something substantial has happened. 
that night we might not read that book, you know, that we've been typically reading together. We might just talk that night, okay? So there's a plan, but there's also spontaneity because it's a relationship. And that's what real relationships are like. They are, they respond to, to whatever's going on in our life. So in my devotions, typically I do have a general plan of what I'm doing at that point. Maybe there's something specific I'm studying, um, maybe a topic that I'm studying, or maybe um, a specific uh, scripture or something that I'm praying through, or a, something that I, a quality that I'm, I need, I know that God needs to cultivate in my life, so I'm studying that. Um, and I may have a specific plan of books that I'm reading through or something of that nature, but if something comes up that it's like, you know, for this morning, I really have this other need, and so I don't have any problem setting aside the plan and going and studying that instead or going and reading that instead. Um, and I remember uh, it was probably a month ago now, something had happened and I was pretty distressed about it. And so um, one of the things I did is I like to mark my Bible a lot. And so I went to the book of Isaiah and I just started reading all the, the verses I'd highlighted. So I jumped through the chapters, you know, because I'd read one verse here, then one verse here, then one verse there, then one verse there, then a few verses here, because it was just the ones I'd highlighted that were really meaningful to me. And so I read probably, I don't know, highlighted verses in half the book of Isaiah. And at the end, it was a really encouraging time for me. I don't do that every day, but it was something that was meaningful to me that morning. So yes, I would encourage you to have a plan, a general plan, but I would also encourage you to um, be able to set that aside and let it be a relationship of getting to know God and letting him speak to you on whatever is really on your heart that day. So yes to both probably would be the answer to that, to that question. Um, and then can I read any spiritual book? So I think the answer to that is, um, again, however God is leading you. So um, the Bible is the most important book, right? And I, we all know that. And so the Bible is the book we most need to study, but there's a lot of other really wonderful um, books out there. You gave the example of, of the spirit of prophecy. Um, and I do read the spirit of prophecy as part of my devotions. What I would, the only thing that I would encourage is that we always make sure that the Bible has the, um, the bulk of our interest and in our study. That doesn't mean that it has to be the majority every single day, but that the, majority of our collective devotional time is is spent really wrestling through and studying with the bible and then we can also read other things that are inspiring and encouraging and uplifting and that point us to christ so um again probably yes to both with that just as long as we keep the the word of god as the most important um study in our in our word um so now we've talked about the two most critical things to have one the holy spirit and two heart preparation now, if we have those two things, if we really sought God and we really brought our hearts to him and asked him to work in our hearts and, and maybe we've changed some things up in our life and the way we um, schedule our lives so that we're protecting our time with God more, whatever it is in our individual experience, maybe we've let go of some things, made some surrenders, then we approach the word of God. How do we make it really interesting, right? And I want to talk through this for a little bit and then um, because we have about half hour left and I want to also still be sensitive with Q&A. If you have any questions, go ahead and type them through and we'll just try to make sure we cover your questions and um, the practicals of making the Bible interesting. So 
let's, um, as an example, let's go to John chapter nine. I think it's always easiest to make a point if we like kind of do it together. So let's go to John chapter nine. <clears throat> and when we approach the Bible, the Bible of course has lots of stories um, because God's wanting us to experience um, stories help us enter into relationship more because we can put ourselves into that experience. So there's stories. Of course, there's a lot of prophecies in the Bible. There's a lot of poetry in the Bible. So um, there's different ways I approach different um, portions of the Bible to really be able to understand it. And you can use the same tactics on different portions of the Bible, but I'm just wanting to share some general principles that things maybe you can try. So for instance, when I'm in, in the poetic portions of the Bible, like maybe the Psalms, the Psalms is a lot of prayers. It's a lot of poetry. Um, and it's a lot of, um, you know, God speaking to us and us speaking to God. So one of the things I really love to do with the Psalms is to pray through them and to say, you know, for instance, if I go to, um, let me see, maybe Psalm, um, Psalm 69. Okay. Psalm 69, this is something that is highlighted in my Bible here. And, um, and in fact, the, the day I remember very clearly, the day that I highlighted these, and I was actually in Europe, I was in Germany, um, the day that I highlighted and um, wrote a note beneath this, and it became a really significant passage. And, and it says, oh God, you know my foolishness. My sins are not hid from you. Let not those who wait for you, O Lord of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Let not those who seek you be confounded for my sake, O God of, of Israel. So this is a passage that's saying basically, Lord, I've done these things that you know were were foolish, and I made it, I, I shouldn't have done them. Please don't let other people be hurt by what I did. That's basically what the Bible is is, is passage is saying. So maybe I'll take this verse and I'll say, Lord, you know my foolishness. Maybe if I don't particularly feel my foolishness on that day, I'll say, Lord, you know, right now maybe I'm feeling a little self satisfied, or maybe not. You know, whatever your circumstances are right then, and say, Lord, please either help me to understand how how weak I am, or Lord, I understand how weak, help me to see your love. And so you can pray through a passage and then go down, let not those who wait for you, O Lord of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Lord, say, Lord, help me never to be um, like a stumbling block to other people, like to do something that, that causes somebody else to turn away from you. And you can really take that passage and pray through it. Or Psalm 1, where it says, blessed is the man who walks um, not in the counsel of the ungodly. You can spend time praying about that and saying, Lord, please help me to discern today if I'm, if I'm tempted to walk in the counsel of the ungodly, right? If I'm tempted to, what does that mean? And start asking questions and praying about it. Um, and I have found that, especially with my prayer life, because a prayer life is a big part of your devotional life, that it is so easy to just start this one-sided conversation with God and be like, oh, Lord, help this. And help with that and forgive me for this and please help fix that. And it's just a one-sided thing. And so when we pray the, through the word of God, we're reading God's words and then we're responding and then we're taking in his words and responding. It's a little more like a conversation, which is very special during prayer. So we can pray through portions of the scriptures. That is something that I frequently do that is very, very meaningful. Sometimes I do that maybe for my whole devotions, just take a passage in the Psalms or maybe from the gospels or something and just pray through it one phrase at a time and ask God to, to bring that part of the word of God really into my heart. Right. All right. So, um, 
let's talk about how to make stories very meaningful. So first thing, praying through the scriptures. Second thing, to make stories very meaningful. And one thing with stories is we really want to slow ourselves down, okay? So it's so easy to pick up the Bible, uh, say John 8, the very end of John chapter 8, it says, um, Jesus is having this conversation with the Pharisees, and they are being pretty rude to Jesus and saying, well, you, you're demon-possessed and all these things. They're telling Jesus that he's demon-possessed. And um, <clears throat> Jesus is responding to them and, and um, trying to help them understand that they were the ones that were really off track. And at the end, Jesus makes the statement, and this is John 8, verses, uh, verse 56. And he says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And oh, they don't like that. They're like, what? You're not even 50 years old and you say you've seen Abraham? And they really get, I mean, they're already upset. You can see through the whole chapter, they're very upset with Christ. And he makes this statement at the end and they're just like, oh, you're, you, you're not, you're not even 50. And Jesus makes the reply in verse 58. Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, that's a Jewish name for God, right? So, first of all, we can read through those passages and be like, oh, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it was glad. Then said the Jews, you're not yet 50 years old. We can just read it and not enter into the emotions, right? But the reason why God gave us these stories is for us to enter in and picture Jesus saying this and picture how people were reacting or like, oh, you know, you're not even 50 yet. And then Jesus is like, well, before Abraham was, I am. Now, if you picture that moment where Jesus says before Abraham was, I am. And they're like, oh, you know, I mean, the reaction of the crowd, they're just so upset that this man, you know, they, they think he's a man, claimed to be God. And so they all grab stones and they're going to kill Jesus. And they are so upset. So if you take some time to slow down and enter into the way that crowd feels and what Jesus is trying to communicate and the reactions and the strength of the emotion, the people that were there present, oh, they felt strongly. And the disciples that were there watching this whole thing, you know, how would you feel if you were one of the disciples? So there's three questions that I, that, um, that I would really encourage you to ask. And we got these from one of our mentors, Elder Mark Finley. He says, he, he shared these three questions with us and I wanna share them with you because I think they're really powerful. The first question is, what's happening here? Okay, seems like a really simple question, but what's happening in this paragraph? Jesus has been talking to them and people are getting so worked up. Before Abraham was, I am, he just claimed to be God. And then like, they're all snatching up stones and they're ready to throw it and like, put yourself, Put yourself there and say, what's happening? Like, and enter into the scene. Try to picture it in your mind. Then your second question is, how would I feel if I was there? Picture yourself as one of the crowd, listening to him say this thing. Picture yourself as one of his, as his disciple, watching Jesus make this statement before Abraham was, I am. Woo, Jesus just claimed to be God, and now everybody's trying to kill you. And, okay, so enter into that emotion and then say, what, what does this have to teach me? So let's go back to the Bible. Okay, so they say, you're not 50 years old. You've seen Abraham. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to cast at him. Like, we're going to kill you. Jesus hid himself.
itself went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. So this is like a miraculous thing. Jesus like gets up and he walks out, and this enraged crowd can't figure out like how he gets through the midst of them. Then it says, verse nine, I mean chapter nine, verse one. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from his birth. So if you if if you were just maybe going to open up your Bible and you just saw. John chapter nine, verse one, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from his birth. And then it just goes on into the story of that man and being healed. You might completely miss the fact that Jesus is actually walking out of a situation. There is a mob back there wanting to kill him and shouting with rocks in their hands. And Jesus walks by, is walking out from that situation and he sees the man there. And rather than being like, hey, I'm running for my life right now. I gotta get out of here sorry to you on the side of the road that's blind you're just gonna have to you were born blind you can survive another couple days i'll be back in a while no jesus stopped right then what does that teach you about the character of christ when there's somebody back there like a whole crowd that's like screaming and ready to kill him he still noticed this man on the side of the road so there's there's so many details in the bible that teaches about about christ what, what he's like if we will slow down and say why was Jesus passing by? It's a question. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man. Why was he passing by? Well, the chapter before answers. He was passing by because he had just left the temple where there was a big group of people trying to murder him. <laughs> okay. So the Bible is just amazing. It's such an amazing book. Let's look at a few more details um, from, this, from this story. So Jesus passed by. He saw a man blind from his birth. When you're reading stories, again, the point here is slow down ask yourself questions, enter in, try to picture it, try to see it for yourself, try to enter in, what would I feel like if I was standing there and watching this, and ask yourself as many questions as possible. So, um, Jesus passed by, he saw a man. We've already figured out, Jesus noticed this guy, even though he's leaving a crowd that's trying to kill him, just back, not too far back, right? Jesus sees him, and then the, the disciples have an interesting question, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind, right? Doesn't seem like a question they should have been thinking about right then, but we can ask, why were they asking that question? Like, why were they, why were they asking Jesus that question and, and try to really dig down into the details of why, why was that on their mind, right? That's a whole other topic we, can get, we, we don't have time to get into, but maybe go back and ask yourself that question, see if you can dig up some answers, right? Um, Jesus replies in verse three, Jesus answered, Neither has this man sinned nor his parents. So it's neither, he says. But so that the works of God should be made manifest in him. So that he would reveal the works of God. Now, what can we learn from that? Let's stop and ask ourselves a question. Well, what's the works of God? So we can just zoom through that verse and just move on to the next one and not be very edified by it. Or we can say, well, okay, so why are the disciples asking this question? Why is Jesus saying, you know, we can either just jump over and say, well, this is just a theological statement of why bad things happen to good people. He was a good person, but, oh, something bad happened so that, you know, a better thing could occur. And maybe we can take that as the promise. It's encouraging to us that maybe something bad's happening in our life, but something better will come out of it. Or we can, you know, there's so much you can just get out of one verse. Um, so Jesus says, neither has this man sinned nor his parents. So the works of God should be made manifest in him. That's why he was born blind. It's Jesus' point. So the works of God should be made manifest. Okay, so I want to slow myself down and say, what's the works of God? 
is it just healing healing the guy was that the work of god that was going to be made manifest that he was born blind just so jesus could walk by and heal him was that why he was born is that the work of god or is there something more so we can start saying well what's the works of god maybe we can do a search on our phone or something if you have the bible app on your phone you can maybe search works of god and see where else in the bible that comes up you know there's other places in the bible where that very word works of god if you flip back to john chapter six they the people ask jesus a question they say what shall we do that we may we may work the works of god oh so there's this connection what what is the works of god and, and what was being revealed in this man jesus makes the reply he says this is the work of god he's going to give us a definition john chapter six verse i'll give you the verse in just a moment here it's highlighted in my bible john chapter six verse 28 and 29 okay what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. Okay, so the work of God is believing in Jesus. So then Jesus, come, we come back to John chapter 9, and they're like, who's, who sinned? This man or his parents? Jesus is like, they didn't sin. They came so that the work of God could be made manifest in this man. In other words, the purpose of this man's life and why he was born blind is so that this man could become a specific revelation of what it means to believe in Jesus. Now we suddenly have context of, okay, let's watch this guy because he's going to show me what it means to believe in Jesus. Okay. Then I can go on and we're not going to read the entire chapter, right? And start saying, okay, first of all, why did Jesus put, use his saliva and make you know, use the dirt and put that on the guy's eyes. Why did Jesus do that? We can ask that question. Why did the guy let Jesus do that? You know, if, if you were just out there, would you allow somebody to spit on the, the ground and make mud and put that on your eyes? <laughs> would you allow someone to do that, right? So we can start really entering into this story. Jesus told him, rather than just touching, Jesus didn't just touch his eyes. Why didn't Jesus just say, see? He could have healed him that way, but he healed him a specific way. And this whole chapter is actually an articulation of what it means to receive spiritual eyesight. Okay, so I'd really encourage you to go read John chapter 9. It's one of my, and study it, one of my favorite chapters as well. Um, why did Jesus send him to the pool to wash instead of just opening his eyes? Why did Jesus then leave and not go with him? Why did the man go? <laughs> you know, we, there's so many questions. So the guy goes, he washes off, he can see, and he comes around, and, and then his neighbors are like, are you the guy that was born blind? And he's like, yeah, that's me. And the others are like, no, it's just like him. That's so encouraging, isn't it? Because we learn that um, when our lives are really transformed, the others will be like, that's you, but it's not you. It's something like you. Like, it's something different. And that's what we need. We need to be something different. It's us. It's still us, but it's something that's it's not us. It's Christ living in us. That's what we need. You go through the rest of the chapter, and you and this this blind man who has never seen Jesus, he's, he's talked to him, interacted with him briefly. Jesus put the stuff on his eyes and was like, go wash, and he went. And this blind man ends up, without ever having seen Jesus, going in, standing up by himself in front of all the religious leaders and making one of the most brilliant defenses of Jesus ever given in the New Testament. And Jesus comes back and meets him after he's been rejected by the Jewish nation and, and excommunicated from the church. And Jesus says, you know, 
do you believe on the, uh, Jesus' final question to him is, um, do you believe on the son of God? It comes back full circle. Do you believe on the son of God? And he says, well, who is he, Lord? So I can believe on him because he'd never seen Jesus face to face. He'd only interacted with him when he was still blind. Jesus says, thou hast both seen him and it's he who talks with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And Jesus' final statement in this um, chapter, he says, I came into the world so that those who see might, who, those who see night not might see and those who see might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees that were with him heard these words and said, are we blind also? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not have sin, but now you say we see, therefore sin remains. So the whole chapter is about being able to see and being able to believe on the son of God. And what does it mean to believe? Jesus says at the beginning, you watch this guy, the work of God is going to be revealed in him. That's why he was born the work of God is believing on Jesus. He's going to show what it means to believe in Jesus. At the very end of the chapter, Jesus goes back to him and says, do you believe? He's already proven with his life. And he's like, yes, Lord, I believe. It's the most amazing chapter, okay? I've just really sped over it right now. But go back and read it and then slow yourself down. Ask questions. What does, it, what does this mean? Why did they do this? And then if you don't know the answer, try to, try to look up other parts in the Bible that articulate this same concept of the work of God or being able to see spiritually, like, because the man didn't just receive physical sight, he received spiritual sight. He knew who Christ was and he believed on Christ. And that's what we need. You know, it's the opposite of the hard packed path where we don't, Jesus comes and he's like, he tells us what to do. And we're just like, ah, you know, that's different from the way I live. <laughs> and then the bird comes and takes it away. We need this kind of stuff in our life. So I'd encourage you, when you read stories, ask yourself so many questions um, and just pry into the story. Put yourself into the experience. What would this be like if I was here? How, what emotions would I be feeling if I was the man born blind? If I was there standing in front of all the religious leaders and they're like, you're born in sins. We're going to excommunicate you because you just defended Jesus. How would you and enter into it really as a practical experience and try to enter into those stories. So that's, that's the stories portion. Praying through the Bible, the stories really entering into what it was like and how you would have felt if you were there. And lastly, I want to just talk about um, like the portions of the Bible that are not really story or, or prophecy. For instance, the letters, the epistles, the letters of Paul, or the epistles of first, uh, second, and third John, the epistles first uh, and second Peter. So they are instruction. They're not story form. They're not, um, I mean, there's prophetic stuff in it, but it's not just prophecy like um, Daniel or Revelation. There's, there's a lot of stories. And there's a lot of instruction, just, just written out instruction. So with those portions of the Bible, what I like to do is I like to go to them and picture what it would be like to have someone come and say, hey, a letter has come from Paul. We're going to be reading it. Meet at, meet at, the, meet at the house church. And so everybody goes and they're all excited because Paul left, you know, a year, a year and a half ago. They're all excited to get a letter. And then what I try to do is I read an overview of the entire thing. And then I go back so that I try to get the thought process of the entire letter because they received it as a letter. So when I get a letter from someone, I read the entire thing through and understand the flow of their thought. Then maybe I go back and start reading one little section at a time, one little sentence at a time, asking questions and studying more deeply through it. Okay, so 
that's super fast, but I see the time that we only have about seven minutes left. And I want to leave just a few moments if anybody has. Um, oh, this person, um, Raquel says, can you please repeat the four questions when reading and studying the story? So the first question is, what is happening here? And the, the real idea behind that is just picturing it, like picturing yourself in that situation from the perspective of different people involved, maybe the story of David and Goliath. What was David's perspective? What was Goliath's perspective? What was the Israelite army's perspective? So what's happening here? Put yourself in the situation. Second question, how would I feel? Okay, so really trying to enter if I was there, really trying to enter into the emotions and the, the, the experience of actually being present for that story, because that's why the stories were given. So first, what's happening here? Second, how would I feel if I was in the situation? Third question, how does it apply to me? So when I've entered into how I would feel in that situation, then I want to ask, how does this apply to me today? How does it apply to me that Jesus walked by and saw a man who was blind and stopped to notice him, even though there were people behind him that were trying to kill him? How does that apply to me right now that Jesus will stop? And no matter how busy he is, no matter what's going on in this world, and pandemics and who knows what Jesus will still stop and notice me, right? So how does it apply to me? And then um, the last one is, is not a specific question, but basically question almost everything in the story. Why did the disciples ask that the question about the man? Why did Jesus put clay on his eyes instead of just touching him? Why did the man go and defend, you know, just ask questions continually, specifically about everything that happens in the story, and then really try to dig and invest and I want to encourage you. Getting something interesting out of it. I'm really having a hard time understanding this. I want to really encourage you that the day, I remember the, the, that was more like a week's time that I was studying John chapter nine that was so, um, so special and made that one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Um, it was right after, it was right during that same time of my, my son after he was born. And my devotional time was so, I was so tired and it was difficult and it was challenging. And my mind was just full of his doctor's appointments and this and that. And it was just like all these things that were just, had to be done, but they weren't eternal things. And I was just like, I was having such a hard time and I'd read my Bible, but it wasn't that interesting. And I was like, Lord, my mind is just not working like it used to. I used to be able to really dig in and find amazing stories, I mean, amazing meaning and, and understand the Bible. Now I can't. So I'm just really struggling. And God said, well, why don't you ask me for help? So I was like, oh, okay, Lord, please help me. And so I really made it a matter of prayer of Lord, please help me to really understand the, the interesting things in the Bible again. And um, I ended up um, on John chapter nine and started just asking all these questions. And it is such a meaningful chapter. I tell you, study it. It's such a good chapter. When I got done, I realized, and all these amazing connections from John chapter nine and the meaning of what it means spiritually, not just as a story, but the spiritual impact from my life was so exciting. And God, you know, brought those meanings into my, into my mind as I studied over the process of probably a week. It wasn't just one day. And, and every day it got better and got better and got better. So if you decide to sit down to your devotions tomorrow and you're like, Lord, help me to have 
awesome devotions when I read this story and it's not super amazing, the next day go back and pray again and search your heart again and say, Lord, help me to understand and really picture this and, and do it again and again until you really get something out of it because God wants you to know and to, to understand his word and to really be able to grasp it. Ask so many questions when you're reading the Bible because the Holy Spirit's there to teach us all things. Back to that, that reminder and bring everything to our memory, what he has spoken to us. So um, I think we'll call, that, uh, we'll call that a wrap for the, for the um, workshop. Thank you so much for everyone for joining. And I just pray that God will bless you. He'll bless you, you know, as you pursue the Holy Spirit, as you seek to prepare your heart before him. And then as you dig the word, as you pray through, through the Bible, do that. It's so encouraging to me every time I do. And then when I go for a while without doing it or I forget, and then I start again, I'm like, oh, what was I, <laughs> what was I thinking? This is so good. So as you, as you apply those things and consistently do them, Jesus will become so special to you. And, and who he is as a person will become so attractive to you. And as, as you continue to pursue the Holy Spirit, changing your mind and pursue knowing Christ and pursue loving him and pursue understanding how his word and how interesting it is, it will be such a blessing for you. So I just pray that God will help you and bless you and encourage you and me that he will revitalize my devotional life again because it's so easy for us to fall into ruts and then we need to get back out and start again. And if we then fall back into old habits, we start again. And that's what the Christian life is about. And the Bible says that the, that the godly man, he falls seven times, but he gets back up. And that's, what it, that's where the rubber meets the road with our devotions. If you get on a streak where it's amazing, and then next thing it's not that great, we get back up and we pursue him again. So let's have a prayer at the end of this and then just ask God that he will help us to have wonderful uh, connection with him. Let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your goodness and for your power. And we thank you for the Bible. Thank you for um, the, the instruction you've given us, the things you've taught us. Thank you so much for um, the opportunity to meet together and to seek you together. Lord, I pray for myself and for everybody on this workshop. Lord, please um, guide and enlighten and strengthen us and help us to, to, to plead for your Holy Spirit and to surrender our hearts and then to come to your word and to seek to understand it and to know what it means. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us to um, really have a meaningful uh, connection with you and to really have Jesus, not just know about him, but to know him personally, to know you and to walk with you. Thank you so much for your goodness, Lord. And I pray that you bless um, the entire uh, ASI Europe and GYC Europe convention and help us to uh, draw very close to you in it. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. And may um, you have wonderful, wonderful devotional times um, from now on out. And for those of you who have sent me uh, private messages, I'm going to read them. And thank you for sending them to me. All right. God bless you.